you need to be yourself and recruit the way you are, who you are, and act like that with no matter who you're talking to, whether it's the, the kid, the parents, the high school coach, the training coach, whatever it might be, you got to be you because at the end of the day, if you go out and you get this kid or you're selling something for him to come to your program, he's going to step on this campus one day and he's going to find out real fast if you're not who he thought you were. Welcome back to another episode of Up Close in Personnel. I am your host, Alex Brown. Whether you're listening on your daily run, commuting to work, or just at home on the weekend, thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to the show. If you're listening for the first time, please hit subscribe, rate the show, share it with someone you know. If you're back for more, I'm going to stop right here and get this ball rolling because this week is is week 10 of the podcast and we're welcoming our ninth guest to the show, Johnny Kovach, the director of player personnel for the Northwestern University football program. Now, this one was really fun and really insightful for me because we talked about a lot more than just recruiting. We touched on everything from basketball to baseball to how we can learn from all types of successful teams and organizations. And from a personnel perspective, we discussed the traits of the best recruiters, how you can learn from other high performers, and our topic of the week, roster management, the numbers game. We're talking eligibility, redshirt rules, scholarship allocation, you name it. So with all that being said, let's get right to this week's conversation with Johnny Kovach. Just hit a button, Morty. Give me a beat. Oh, man. Okay. All right. Um. Johnny, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. So you went up to Maine to uh, be with fiance's family. How's quarantine life? How's, how's everything up there? It was good, you know. Uh, we were actually, ironically, supposed to be getting married this weekend, this past weekend, but obviously that didn't happen due to uh, all COVID nineteen. So uh, we just we were up there for a week. I was able to work from home from uh, her lake, her parents' lake house. So I had a nice view of the lake throughout that whole week of work, and then uh, we were able to enjoy a long weekend with her family and relax a little bit, play some golf, and kind of take a little break. Obviously, the never a break on the phone from recruiting, but tried to take a break as much as possible yeah and I know uh you living in Chicago and and breathing Chicago sports I'm sure everyone's talking about the last dance and kind of the uh the aftermath of it so what's everyone saying about it over where you're living oh it's it's talked about daily I mean especially from coach Fitz down obviously coach Fitz grew up a Chicago guy um lived through that era as a high school college guy so he, he's been preaching for years. It, the whole time I've been on his staff, he's always been preaching how Jordan's better than LeBron. So um, this was kind of now hit, to show proof that, I mean, Michael Jordan was the player he was. And we got other couple other coaches on our staff that um, are Chicago born. And I mean, they were just as passionate as I've ever seen them for anything else. It's something they all live through and uh, stuff you can learn from it. Obviously, um, he was the type of athlete competitor he was. And so are the guys like Scotty Pippen and Dennis Rodman and the list goes on. But um, it was a cool story. I mean, I mean, the feedback here obviously has been second to none. Everyone loves it. Everyone loves that era of the Bulls and kind of just hoping they can get back there soon. Yeah. And like, 
I'm curious that, to know what you think, because we both, you're 27, I'm 28. Like we both grew up seeing LeBron's rise from high school, seeing his hype and then the heights he's been able to hit. And then now going back and really getting a better, because I didn't know the MJ story like that actually told it, right? Like this, the challenges that he went through the first, you know, five, six years in the league. But like, where do you stand on the, uh, on the MJ LeBron debate? Well, I'm actually biased because I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. So I, okay, grew up, well, there you go. I grew up in Shaker Heights, which is about 15 minutes from Cleveland. So to me, I mean, like LeBron's like our baby. I mean, yeah. he, he won us the championship that in my lifetime hasn't been won in Cleveland. And yeah, he came and he, or he left and then came back. But I think it's a different debate. I mean, as far as a competitor, they're both obviously top of the line competitors and I think as an athlete, I mean, LeBron's obviously second to none. His just uh, his physical ability and um, just, I mean, looking at him, he's a, he's a creature. But then Michael Jordan's the – how is he not the best basketball player to ever play the game? And obviously LeBron, you know, has dominated the game of uh, in my era. Obviously there's Kobe and there's others to be named. But I, I don't know – to me it's hard to really say there is a better one. I mean, they're both dominated their eras. Yes, Jordan had more rings. Um, LeBron's kind of fighting more of a, a different battle of, you know, th- these teams that are just stocking up on all-stars. So it's a little different approach than it was back then. And obviously there's a different, it's a different game of basketball. You see these guys now drive to the hole and they're getting fouled right away. And back then you were driving to the hole and taking a beating. And I mean, you saw yeah. in, the, in the last dance, like, he's getting pulled, he's getting all this stuff and nothing's being called and you, there's fights on the court. I mean, you don't see that as often anymore. And um, I don't know, it's hard. What about you? You know, um, I think right now, like right at this very moment, you know, I would say Michael, but like, and at the end of the day, I feel like LeBron's playing his best basketball that he's ever played. Like I'm a huge Mavericks fan. Like that's the team I grew up with. Like Dirk Nowitzki's my guy. Like, um, grew up watching the Jason Kidd and those guys, but like Luka Doncic is insane. And he's throwing up like ridiculous triple double numbers and numbers that are comparable to what Michael and, and LeBron were doing when they were that age. And just watching the way, like he's able to dominate teams. Right. And I was watching the Mavericks intensely this year, first time in a long time. And I was like, okay, cool. Like we're going to get a real good test of where they're at when they play the Lakers. And it was just like, holy crap. Like <laughs> LeBron James is ridiculous. Like the, the, the way he's passing the ball, the way he's like elevated his game. And it, you kind of saw that too with the um, MJ documentary, how he went from just being like an athlete to like a player. Um, and I think that has so many like parallels to every sport, right? Like guys like win off of their athleticism and then, if they get into the right scenario, Phil Jackson being a guy, you know, that was the coach that got it to the next level with them uh, for MJ, that is. And LeBron just maturing and growing up. I think that applies to every single sport, you know, especially like us in recruiting, just transitioning back to like the football side of things. So, you know, you mentioned just briefly, like how recruiting has changed and how different it is right now. Like, what is your day to day? Like what's, what's life right now in the Northwestern recruiting department? Yeah, I mean, it's we're trying to stay up to date and act, and act as if we're in the office. I mean, because to us, if, if we're not working hard, we're going to be behind. And we know obviously big, obviously for our staff, how big this, I mean, and our players, how big the season is that's coming ahead. And 
for our staff as far as recruiting, I mean, it's not like the 2021 class or the 2022 class or 2023 class are going to take a stop just because of this whole virtual life. So um, we're kind of staying on our day-to-day operation, you know, whether that's communicating with the players, evaling tape, um, kind of setting up visits, whether it's on virtual or not, um, and then just trying to forecast for the future. Obviously, it's hard. There's not many answers right now for what's going to come the next couple months or even the next couple, the next year. So we're trying to do as best as we can and um, act as if it's a normal day in the office. You know, we got guys reaching out for transcripts. We got guys eval and tape. We got guys meeting with coaches on where they're at with their boards. And, you know, we're trying to just kind of take it day by day. And um, as coach Fitz keeps saying, it's uh it's a marathon, not a sprint. He's been saying that since the first day we've been on this. And it's true. I mean, look at us now eight weeks later and we're still on this thing. So um, we're trying to just do what we can. We're meeting, we're communicating constantly and uh, just trying to keep this thing rolling because it ain't stopping. And as you've seen, I mean, they're up a couple hundred commits than there were a year ago this time. So, yeah, that's, that's the crazy and, and scary part a little bit about it. You know, we've had a couple of commits. I know you guys have gotten a couple of commits during this time period. So I think the thing that everybody's kind of working towards is like, okay, when we are able to get back in the office, I want to hit the ground running. And I think that's so key as far as just being prepared. And like that is going to breed the confidence. Like once you get ready to hit the season, but for you, what makes somebody a good recruiter in your eyes? Well, first is just being yourself and being real. Um, you know, there's different approaches out there and you got these guys, you know, there's people all across the country and there's all different type of recruiting, but it's one thing to be yourself. Like you need to be yourself and recruit the way you are, who you are and act like that with no matter who you're talking to, whether it's the, the kid, the parents, the high school coach, the training coach, whatever it might be, you got to be you because at the end of the day, if you go out and you get this kid or you're selling something for him to come to your program, he's going to step on this campus one day and he's going to find out real fast if you're not who he thought you were. And yeah. even in the recruiting process, I mean, these kids are smart. Their parents are smart. Their high school coaches are smart. They've been around this. So they know they can pick up on who's real, who's not, who's talking to them, who is it coming from an, an assistant and not actually them. You know, I, de- I bring up the recruit, the family, the high school coach, but identifying the situation that kid's in, you know, um, is this a kid that we're going to need to involve the family 100% of the time? Are they going to need to be on text messages? Are they going to need, you know, are we going to need to be talking to the parents weekly? Are we going to need to be talking to the high school coach weekly? Does he have a, you know, a, a coach that coaches him on the side who just works on his footwork, but that's a guy we need to be in the loop with, you know? So that's kind of just identifying the situation. So we know how to approach that kid and then just relationships and, you know, putting that hard work and being relentless and, you know, building that bond that that kid is not going to say no because he can't say no to you. He has to, he's coming to play for you because he just can't say no. Like he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to let you down. Right. Exactly. He doesn't want to let you down. He doesn't want to let coach Fitz down, whoever it might be, but um, you know, just building that relationship. And then from that comes being real with yourself of, I know I started with being real of who you are, but then being real of, do you actually have a shot? Are we wasting our time? Are we just spinning our tires? And um, that's kind of just 
full circle comes back to just being real and is this something realistic or do we need to go on to the next guy? As far as like being realistic is, are we a legitimate option for this kid for the right reasons? Is that, is that what you're getting at? Yeah. Kind of like yeah. the, the recruitability side of it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, is, is this a guy, A, does he fit? Is he, is he a Northwestern kid? Is it a Northwestern family? Is this a situation that this kid could strive at Northwestern? Or are we just getting in it to getting in it because he's a check on the film tape? Obviously, there's plenty of guys out there who, yeah, you turn on their film, four clips in, or you turn on a game, four plays in, and you're like, yeah, this kid's a no-brainer. But the more important part is, is he a fit? Because one thing that we stress on is I'm not willing to risk bringing – like for a coach, for example, they're not willing to risk – bringing a guy in to mess up that locker room that coach Fitz has formed and the culture coach Fitz has formed here at Northwestern is second to none. And it's on the, it's then on the position coaches to bring in the right type of guy. And if they're bringing in, if something, if a coach brings in the wrong guy, well, he could jeopardize the entire locker room. And then all of a sudden this locker room who we feel is, is the best locker room in the country, all of a sudden that culture could be at zero. So I think it it holds our coaches and everyone in the program to a high standard of let's do as much digging as possible because if we let the wrong person in our in this locker room it could change the whole picture of it. Yeah. And and we talked off air yes or last week and you know the thing that that really stood out that you talked about was like if there's going to be one thing that we're going to be better at than anybody in the Big 10 it's going to be our culture it's going to be our locker room and that's something that we pride ourselves on. So I guess from my perspective and probably people listening to the podcast, like how do you evaluate the the character, that culture fit? And what is that, what does that process look like for you? Like what are the questions that you ask? I know we talked about it, but just share kind of what your process is for finding out if he is that fit because the film is what it is. It's pretty black and white normally, but how do you find that? Absolutely. And that's just doing, doing your due diligence and doing all the research possible. So, you know, when we're going to these high schools, we're getting all the information as possible. And then we're hitting every person, we're hitting people in the building that aren't just the high school football coach we or the track coach or whatever it might be. If there's a guidance counselor, we want our coach sitting in with that guidance counselor, picking their brain about, okay, give me more. We want to hear from that principal that, yeah, this is our your type of guy. This kid's awesome. He checks every box because on our end, we want to check every possible box. We can't let something slide. And then all of a sudden we're two years into having this kid and either a significant injury was hidden or whatever the case might be, but we want to do all our possible research. So that's gathering information from the family. We want to know obviously all in depth about the family, the background, um, what this kid is coming from. And then we also want to hear the other side of it. Someone who is not directly in that family, who's going to give us a real life picture on what this family is, who they are, what they're about, what their values are. Because when, when I bring a kid, when we bring a kid to coach Fitz to evaluate, I better be ready for every question being asked, not about the film, about his entire life, about his life, about what he comes from, about, his relationship with the high school coach about his leadership, whatever the case might be. But I need to be ready to hit him with all those answers because he's not going to go on a kid just because the kid checks the box of he has a good tape. And um, I think that just goes back to the whole culture thing is we need a lot of questions answered before we're going to go on a kid. And 
as forever for whoever follows offers in the country, I mean, we're always at the low end of offers in the country because we don't just shoot out an offer to everyone. And we don't shoot yeah. out an offer just because the kids obviously checked out on tape. And I know you guys are the same way. Um, so it's kind of a similar structure there. Yeah, a little pat on the back here. Uh, you get talking to the two of the uh, the two fewest offers in the country tied <laughs> at 70. Uh, unfortunately, you know, he had to freaking tie us this past year. So it is what it is. Who are the best recruiters you've been around and why? And I know you were with, with uh, Steve Adazio. Now you're with Pat Fitzgerald. And you got a ton of, you know, awesome position coaches that you've seen and been around. But who, who's the best one and why? It's hard. I mean, that's a tough question just because I've, I'm lucky to be around. I've been around so many. Um, starting with where I was prior to here at Boston College, you know, I mean, Coach Coach Adazio put together unbelievable staffs while that, while I was there. You know, I mean, Ryan Day, who's now the head coach of Ohio State, Don Brown, the defensive coordinator at Michigan, Coleman Hutzler, special teams and linebackers down at Texas. You got Justin Fry, who's offensive line at UCLA. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But all those guys I've been around have been such great recruiters. And you know, a couple come to to mind when I just think of like the way they went at this this whole process. And you know, names like. Al Washington, who's now the linebacker coach at Ohio State. Um, I mean, he was relentless. And Anthony Campanelli, who is now a linebacker coach at the Dolphins, he was um, previously just with Michigan, and then before that was with us at Boston College. But, I mean, those are two guys right there who are never putting down their phone, who are absolutely relentless. And they want to do whatever they can to win that relationship so that kid becomes part of their program. Um, and yeah, there's times where they're going to spin their tires just because it's a high priority guy and they really feel like they're in it when sometimes I have to kind of knock them down and be like, Hey, let's be, let's be real now. Do we, do we really think we have a shot or whatever the situation might've been, but yeah. they were relentless. And it was one of those type of situations where, I mean, you're going to get calls, texts from them constantly on the weekends or when you're not, whenever you, for example, aren't like say in the off season and I don't know, we're gone for a weekend or whatever it might be like, you're going to hear from them because that's just part of it. But that also then builds the relationship with that coach, you know, and um, I was lucky enough to build some very strong relationships with those guys and kind of go back to what I said initially, it's just being, they were relentless and they had passion for it. They're always thinking ahead on how this shapes their room, how this shapes their board. And, you know, I mean, then there's, guy like Justin Fry, who's the offensive coordinator at UCLA right now. And I mean, he was as about as real as it gets. I mean, he was going to be his hundred percent normal self a hundred percent of the time and just have the most casual conversations with these guys, but it built unbelievable relationships. And, you know, he's just a, a guy who grew up in the Midwest and in Indiana and, you know, worked his way up to where he is now. And he's an unbelievable, but, he just had his normal conversation with that kid, those kids. And he was, I mean, it, it, like, it all comes back to being relentless and being something you care about having passion for it and um, taking a lot of pride in it. Yeah. So like the, the relentless side, that that's something that's been brought up a couple of times on the show and it definitely shows the kid that he's a priority. Now I'm almost at the point where, like, and I've had this with a couple of kids where they're getting texted by, you know, 10 different schools multiple times a day and they get to the point where they just turn their phone off, throw it to the side. Like, 
I'm getting overwhelmed by this process. Some kids want that, right? Some kids desire that attention. And that's like the more you hit them up, the more you stay on the front of their mind and the more you have a better shot at recruiting and yielding the kid. But like how, how has this kind of time period as far as COVID and everyone being quarantined and really more screen time than ever before? I mean, like I'm finally – uh, getting down in the sixes, trying to, to, to get out of this seven hour screen time type <laughs> deal on my phone. But how do you think this changes recruiting as far as how we're, you know, delivering virtual interactive visits, virtual zoom calls, but, but also as far as like the contact, like what's too much, how do you, how do you kind of balance that line of like, I want to let this kid know he's number one priority for me, but I also don't want to like, run them away so to speak yeah i mean and i i think we're i mean we're pretty upfront about it and i mean coach fitz will they'll tell these kids like look i'm not gonna ask you what you're having for breakfast every day i'm not gonna ask you what you're having for lunch every day i'm not gonna like because that's not what we want to be like we make sure they know they're a priority and we're gonna talk to them and we're gonna check in on them but we don't want to be the, the, those guys that are texting them every single day we don't want to Oh, check a box. I texted blah, blah, blah today. Cool. No, we want to have that relationship and form that relationship. So when we're talking, it's not a dying conversation because we're just asking the same questions of, Oh, what are you doing on this Monday? What are you doing this Friday? Whatever the conversation might be. Right. We want it to be fluid. We want to have a genuine conversation with them, their mom, their dad. And maybe we have to change. Maybe at times we have to change it up, especially during this quarantine time. And, finding someone else in the family to talk to that week. Hey, let me get on FaceTime with your mom and dad this weekend or or whatever the situation is. But um, we just don't want to become stale and we don't want to just check a box for saying, Oh, we texted them or we got on a call with them when, I mean, we actually want to have a genuine conversation. So if that means talking to them less compared to some other schools, that's fine. I mean, as long as we feel like we're continuing to build that conversation, maybe some take more. I mean, it depends on the staff. Um, it depends who it is on our staff. And back to your question before, I mean, we have some of the best recruiters on our staff now that I've ever been around. Um, and that's just kind of goes back to the same points of that relentlessness, the passion. But some of those, some of the guys on our staff, but starting like with our recruiting coordinator, Louis Zianni, and, you know, we got Tim McGargle, Kurt Anderson, Matt McPherson, the list goes on and on of guys on our staff who are phenomenal recruiters. And, you know, just seeing how they approach it of, look, yeah, we need to be talking to these guys, but kind of just seeing how they do it. And, you know, being around here now for three years at Northwestern, I kind of get the feel for how each coach operates their situation, their board, um, their area, just in the sense of, yeah, there's some of them that will talk to a kid a couple times a week, or there's some that'll talk to a kid once a week, because that's just the relationship they've formed. And it's, look, hey, we're going to talk this time every Tuesday night or whatever, or, or maybe some are, Hey, we're doing it. I'm going to text you on Monday and you're going to hit me up on Wednesday, whatever the kind of correspondence is with that kid. It depends on the coach, but I think it really just depends on situations. And then as far as the virtual standpoint, I mean, this obviously can, it, it can take things to the next level when we are back because now we've kind of seen this whole virtual world and, you know, going back to when social media really kicked off in this profession Everyone was going with graphics and videos, and that was kind of a big stage. Well, 
now all of a sudden there's this whole virtual visit world and there's this whole kind of a zoom world and a zoom meeting and whatever it might be. But um, yeah, it's definitely put thoughts in our minds and something right now where we can't, we don't know what's coming over the next couple months and this next year. And it really puts something else to be thinking about for the future. And that I know I've been thinking about a ton is how we can use this to maximize even when we are back in the office, um, just kind of, branding ourselves even more and building these relationships. Yeah. And depending on how different universities like react to this whole thing, I think it could be a big key during game day experiences and game day events. If you're not allowed to have recruits at games, right? Like who knows if that's going to be an issue or hurdle that we have to, to get across. So absolutely. as far as you personally, I know you do a lot, you wear multiple hats or kind of touching every different part of the recruiting process. I wanted to know who were some of the big, biggest influences on you and how you approach this thing and how you run your department. I mean, honestly, it really, it really starts, it's top down. I mean, to me, everyone in this program influences me, whether that's, um, I mean, anyone from Coach Fitz to any of our coaching staff, um, to support staff, to video staff, athletic training staff, uh, the list goes on and on, nutrition staff, um, but like I said, the list goes on and on because I need to learn from these people on a daily basis, how they operate and not just from a knowledge standpoint. I mean, you know, being around now for a couple of years and we're forever growing and moving. And it's one of those things where the more I can learn from them and hear them talking in staff meetings, or even just having a conversation, um, just in the hall with one of them, I can continue to build on what we're doing as a program and more knowledge. So when I am talking to a recruit or their family, I'm able to touch on those points. But then even also just from a professional standpoint, how they lead, how they have a group. For example, Kevin Kikigawa, who um, is our head football athletic trainer, he, like, he oversees a whole staff. So I can also see how he does it on a daily basis. Or Coach Hoot, our strength coach, how he oversees his staff. Um, and then I see on the field, that same point of view. So I can see it. What, yeah. In a staff meeting, I can see it in their actual rooms, or I can even see it on the field of how they handle themselves when pressure situations get a little more crazy. And it's like, wow, that's really interesting to learn from, um, especially being in a role I'm in where it's more behind the scenes controlling a staff, but all those type of people are, are huge influencers and especially the assistant coaches, um, you know, just seeing how they operate, seeing, I mean, from a, recruiting standpoint or an evaluation standpoint, you know, kind of seeing how they watch tape, what they look for in guys, hearing the wording they use, um, or when we're talking about our roster, really seeing what they're looking for. Um, and then to that point, sitting in position meeting rooms, watching those um, meetings just to kind of learn more about what exactly they're looking for in a cornerback here at Northwestern or what they're looking for in this defense. So I know, how our staff can better pre prepare them to recruit those type of guys. And then Coach Ianni, Louis Ianni, our running back coach, who's also a recruiting coordinator. Um, I mean, him and I are on the phone 20, all the time. And, you know, learning from a guy like him who has coached at many or has coached at, um, you know, Power Five and, and, and beyond, he has coached some guys who, I mean, he's got a handful of guys in the NFL right now that, he it was he was relentless about his recruiting process he developed them he took them in like they were his sons and 
those guys are now playing at that highest level for a reason. Well, I'm he's probably more interested in the recruiting process right now than anyone on our staff. And it's all he cares about. <laughs> Obviously his family and, you know, his players and everything, but he's always thinking recruiting, always thinking recruiting. And that, that also just drives me on a daily basis. And we have, we have other coaches who are the same way and similar mindsets, but that younger generation of coaches now is they've always, they always have to be and always have been thinking about recruiting because they're the ones who have the most energy. They're the most relentless and, you know, like our staff, for example, whether it's being in a conversation with Coach Ianni, Coach Anderson, Coach McGargle, some of these young guys who are just absolutely relentless. And those type of guys, it's just, you know, always throwing ideas, always having conversations with them, even when it's not in a staff format. Um, and then, like I said, I mean, Coach Ianni, he just, I mean, we're always talking. I mean, at the end of work days, he's calling me, especially now on Zoom. And we're just kind of rehashing, okay, what happened in recruiting today? Where do we need to go? And he's he's a coach. So he is one of those, uh, you know, he's not in recruiting meetings during the day. So yeah. he wants to know, okay, would you guys talk about your meetings? He just wants to know. And then, you know, he's part of a lot of conversations with Fitz and I, um, just to kind of where we, where we see ourselves going next, what we want to do here, or whether it's a text conversation. So it sounds like your big thing is watching. You're very observant. Just just hearing you talk about like your influences, like when did that start for you? Did you kind of pick that up when you were at Boston College um, as far as how you learn and how you grow? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it's definitely something, uh, I, just, I mean, even just growing up, learning from my parents, especially my dad, and just teaching me how to, you know, take everything in and, you know, really just be a sponge to everything and try to absorb as much as possible because, you're learning stuff on a daily basis. And I've been taught that since, since I was born of, you know, and like I said, watching my dad do it throughout his career. And, um, you know, as I grew in, in grade school, then to high school and then to college, I mean, you kind of just see so much. And like people always joke about people watching. Well, I feel like I people watch for a reason because I want to like learn, not just like, oh, this place is an interesting place to people watch. You see all different types of people. Well, for me, it's more of like, when I'm in a work setting, especially, I'm more people watching to see how they operate or what they exactly are doing. And, you know, when I did start at Boston College, it started because I was shell I was like, I was just blown away by the fact that like, it took me like years to accept the fact like, oh my God, I'm actually, I actually want, I really want to be in college football. I can't believe I'm actually at this level working in college football. Even when I was a volunteer, I was just like starstruck. So yeah. starting there and knowing the coaches I was around, starting with Coach Adazio and on and on, I mean, his the staffs I was part of, I was just shell-shocked. So like I would try and gather information, learn and watch as much as I possibly could because these guys have been around it. They were at a championship level. You know, and I, like I say, when I started at Boston College, they were all with Coach, a handful of them were with Coach Meyer when they won two national championships at Florida. So they were able to get, gain that experience and in, all the information with that. So to me, I'm like, wow, I'm around these type of guys right now. Like, how can I not take in every possible thing? And it, I just kind of learned from that. And then when I got here, it's it's been the same. I mean, it's being around high, high level guys. And, you know, Coach Fitz, who I'm biased, but who I think is the best coach in the country, I mean, the way he leads and the way he operates and 
granted, he's been a head coach now for 15 years, but, you know, just to, to think daily of this is, wow, this is like, I want to operate like this one day. Like whether you're a head coach or not, whether you're a CEO or whether you're just a director or whatever it might be, like just the way he operates, the way he cares for people, the way you wouldn't know if he was talking to the defensive coordinator or if he was talking to the volunteer that started a week ago. He treats everyone the same. So I just try and learn from situations like that. And I just try to take in as much as possible. That's awesome. Especially like that you learned that at such an early age, like I know that probably helped you at every single stop along the way during this, this whole time period. Like what are you reading? What are you watching? What are you listening to? What are you, what are you doing? A little bit of everything, starting with obviously the last dance, kind of what we went back to uh, at the beginning of this podcast. But being in Chicago, being around Coach Fitz, who had so much passion for that era of his life, uh, you know, it, it really made me want to to get into it. And obviously, being being a huge sports fan, I obviously wanted to get into it regardless. But you know, really getting a feel for Chicago and what the Bulls era was like, because like you alluded to, I mean. Growing up, people like I—I I didn't watch Michael Jordan. I mean, I wasn't old enough to really understand what it was. And our era was more Kobe and LeBron, and uh, obviously saw a ton of that. But I mean, really, like I had no idea about uh, Scottie Pippen wasn't getting paid much, or just the chaos that went on. Dennis Rodman just goes on vacation during the season, like yeah, <laughs> all that stuff that you kind of just like whoa. But then after you watch a two hour a night of two hours of that all that information and you're just kind of like mind blown and like you're going to bed that night like wow not only thinking about the things you learn from a professional standpoint or how these guys operate or but just some of the stuff that went on um, obviously was extremely uh, interesting and then just trying to keep myself busy when I'm not working trying to watch um, you know like my fiance got me onto Ozarks and one of my couple of my buddies were talking about as well. So watch that for a bit, but you know, I'm a, I'm sports and sports. I, that's all I do and care for. So, I mean, I, it's been a struggle not watching sports. That's for sure. You're more of a baseball guy, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's gotta be really killer. So are you a, are you an Indians guy through and through? It's fun. That's a good one too. Um, so the Indians, Yes, growing up, my whole life, I've been an Indians fan. Um, I then, when I started dating her, she happened to, in high school, host Anthony Rizzo, who's now the oh, star wow. clubs, first baseman. And uh, so now, over, I mean, still diehard Indians fan, but um, now, since I've met, obviously been with her now um, and met the Rizzo family and kind of have had some unbelievable experiences through that. It's hard not to be a Cubs fan, um, especially with the fact that obviously we live in Chicago, but that connection her family has with the Rizzos. I'd say I'm a diehard Indians and Cubs fan. And it was yeah. kind of, it was ironic back in 2016 when they're playing each other for the World Series and it was two teams trying to pretty much break a curse. It was mixed feelings. I mean, deep down, it was obviously because I was a Cleveland Indians fan my whole life, but then being, you know, with her and her family who, you know, hosted Anthony Rizzo and, you know, know the struggle he went through when he had cancer. It's kind of one of those, I don't know, who do I really want to win, you know? It's like you're not losing either way. Yeah. That, so and, it, was, and, it was crushing for the Indians not to take that one home, but then to see a guy like him um, get it done was pretty cool. I just remember 
my, my dad's a big baseball guy. He was a catcher, but um, grew up like baseball was the sport. And we, we had all of these different World Series uh, VHSs. Like the favorite one of all time for me was the 2001 um, Diamondbacks when they beat the Yankees. Because they just like everything that went into that season. But um, we had the 95 World Series when Chipper Jones beat the Indians. Yeah. Uh, I mean, tough, tough sledding for those guys, man. Uh, it's, it's almost that time, though. So in the Cubs way, I don't know if you've read it. Um, Theo Epstein, how the Cubs were built, their front Actually, office. I've been, I've been meaning to get it. This actually, it's so, fun. it's so good. Pete Thamel recommended it to me a couple of years ago, and like, I mean, there's just so many things that you just like, you're constantly like highlighting and taking notes because I think for anybody that's like trying to get into personnel and like scouting and team building, I think it it helps to look at any of the sports, baseball, basketball, football, like all of them as far as like how people scout and how people evaluate talent and how they put it together. Because I mean, you can learn so many things like outside of the box that you just wouldn't have otherwise learned about. Cause you're just in this bubble. You know, do you ever get that sense where you're like, I need to just do something not football related to like, yeah. no, absolutely. I mean, and part of it is my passion for baseball and how much I care about it, but the amount of time I spend you know, researching how they operate, researching how, trying to get a feel for what other organizations are doing. I mean, I'm kind of a, probably a loser for this, but like the, the amount of the interviews and yes, like, and po- even I try to find podcasts if I can, but the amount of interviews I try and watch of front office guys. Um, and I know they're being somewhat vague because they're speaking to the media and an audience that they don't want to tell all the details to, but if Theo Epstein's going to have a 45 minute to an hour pre like press conference, like I'm absolutely going to be locked into the entire time. And I want to hear him talk. I want to hear uh, Jed Hoyer talk. I want to hear how they operate. And I've even kind of through a couple connections. I've reached out to some people on the Cubs staff recently. I was planning on uh, grabbing a cup of coffee with someone just to talk about how they operate and just, just just see the differences. Um, I'm lucky. I mean, Cody Shada, our DFO, has made a couple uh, trips to M- MLB organizations just to see how they operate, to see how we can get better. It's seeing both sides of it. The obvious of how can we get better? What can we be more efficient with? What processes do we need to tweak? Because why are we doing it this way when there's so many more efficient ways of doing it? Which you can gather from any organization or company. So I, I'm a big fan of that, but then it's also just like, I'm also a fanboy of baseball. So I want to hear them talk, but yeah, uh, just hearing them and how they operate. And then, I mean, it's the same way of the Blackhawks or any other teams, uh, professional organizations. I remember yeah. earlier this year, I was watching a behind the scenes on how the Blackhawks do their scouting to then draft day to then all those type of behind the scenes meetings. And yeah, they're going to be vague and, because the whole country can see it, but still seeing the parts you can see very interesting to me and something I'm constantly, you know, diving into and yeah, just trying to gather as much information as possible. Like I said, kind of still just being a sponge for everything. So what did your dad do? Uh, I mean, like, let's get into your, your story and kind of your, your journey through football, but two things that, that stand out, your dad seems like a huge, huge part of, you and like how you learn and being a sponge but 
how did you end up playing lacrosse at Endicott and then going yeah. from lacrosse to, to college football? Like, like just walk us through that whole process. Yeah. So, I mean, growing up, I obviously played, I don't know, a handful of sports. Um, and then when it got to high school, I kind of stuck with the ones I was best at. I don't wish I played baseball longer, but um, I, I was, I, I really found a passion for playing lacrosse. And uh, when I got to high school, I was playing football uh, bat, uh, hockey and lacrosse and, uh, football got to the point where I just, where I wasn't fast enough. I'm a f- five, nine, five, ten, uh, not explosive. Not, I mean, I'm just your average Joe. So it got to the point where I was like, you know what, I'll focus on hockey and lacrosse. And then got to a point where I really felt like I could play at the next level for lacrosse. So then by the end of high school, I really just focused on lacrosse and, did that in college and uh, throughout college, though, I always had a passion for uh, football. And growing up, I always had a passion for football, whether that was waking up on at 9 a.m. every Saturday to watch college game day and watch football all day long. And even in college, I, there was many times where my friends were just like, like, why are you watching the Big Ten Network right now? It's not even football season or whatever it might be. But that was just my passion. It's what I cared about. And uh, I knew getting into uh, you know, starting to think about bigger picture of where I'm going to go. What, what am I going to do after college? Um, I knew it had to be in athletics because that's what I'm passionate about. And at the school I was at, you had to do semester long internship your senior year. And I actually did one in the Boston University athletic department. And I kind of got halfway through it. And I really, obviously I finished it out, but I realized like halfway through, I'm like, I need to be around a team. I need to be about something that's competing weekly, daily. Um, yeah. I need to be about around something that we're in it for you know, the team camaraderie, the whole nine yards. So I, uh, I then started doing the old, you know, call and email. Probably think I did everyone in the big 10, everyone in the ACC. Cause that was like somewhat around my region. I was from the Midwest and then I was out the, on the East coast for college. And, uh, you know, it was just one of those, see who gets back to me. You know, I took a couple of shots out West too, just to see what it would be. I mean, only a couple got back to me and two of which were one where it was actually Cody Shada, who's the DFO here. Um, and that was partially because, I had a connection who played here 30 years ago, but he just wanted to reach out to the program to see if, you know, there's any openings or any volunteer stuff. And, you know, Cody got back to me saying, you know, look, try and get in somewhere and then just stay in touch because they didn't have anything open. And, you know, I was lucky enough that guy from Boston College responded and him and I had similar backgrounds. Um, He had played hockey his whole life and then just flipped over to football because that's what he wanted to do. And, you know, he was like, you know, we don't have anything, but stay in touch because I think come the summer we'll have some stuff at our recruiting camp, which it'll only be two weeks, but, you know, you can put something on your resume and see where you go from there. And him and I, the first time we talked, we sat down right before those camps started, we really hit it off. And uh, he was someone I looked to on a daily basis going forward. But after being at that camp for about a week or so, a couple of the members on their staff kind of, you know, pulled me aside and were like, Hey, I don't know what your plans are this year, but if you want to volunteer, we'd love to have you on staff for this upcoming season. And then, you know, from there is when it really took off. And I was kind of, like I said earlier, I was, I was just starstruck at the fact that, wow, I'm out of working power five college football all of a sudden. And 
this is like what I've dreamed. This is something I've dreamed about my whole life and volunteered then for a year and the staff took care of me and they, you know, they told me kind of throughout the process, we want to hire you as a, you know, grad assistant slash GA uh, slash intern um, on the recruiting staff and kind of see where it goes. And once something opens, we'd love for you to be a part of it. And so then something I was lucky enough where kind of the, the pieces moved and, uh, I was then hired that following May and I, it just kept going from there. And then uh, I was hired a year after that, I was bumped up again on the recruiting staff and, you know, I stayed in touch with Northwestern ever since Cody told me that, that after that first email saying, stay in touch and um, him and I started growing a relationship and then something opened up, something started to open up on their end. And he asked me if it was something I'd want to pursue. And um, it was something that was absolutely interesting to me. And, it was, you know, all the stuff I've heard about Coach Fitz and, you know, getting back to the Midwest and being in the Big Ten, which is something I dreamed about my whole life. And everything came true. And it's it's been an unbelievable experience. You know, three years, been here, going on my fourth season, and there's no one in this country I'd rather work for. I mean, Coach Fitz is second to none, just the person he is, the coach he is. And, you know, it's been unbelievable working for Cody because he's obviously seen this from – He's been now with Fitz for 10 years and seen the whole operation side of it. And he's seen, I mean, he's seen all of it now, not just the operation side of it. So learning from a guy like him and, uh, and then you, you asked about my dad, you know, my dad just, I mean, he was a blue collar guy growing up and, you know, did everything he could to, uh, to continue to, you know, build the guy he was. And, you know, he kind of took every opportunity he could, Growing in the, uh, he he ended up running a paper manufacturing company. Um, now he's retired, so he kind of just lives the vacation life these days. But uh, nice. He no, I mean, this, to see how he grew up through his profession, and you know, really, obviously, I didn't see it, but now I can look back at it, um, and I saw it through the eyes. I saw it through growing up, but never really understood it until I was old enough to understand it, and. Uh, now just i mean the lessons i've learned through him my entire life and obviously my mom too um has just kind of shaped me to be the man i am today what's what's his uh retirement schedule? i mean is he is he a golfer like you now or, or what, what what are you guys doing he's a uh kick his feet up lay back uh try to take it in as much as he can now because you know growing up when we were always on vacation i was always mad because you know why, like why is dad on his phone why is dad on his phone or why is dad reading work stuff? Whereas now it's a completely reversed and, you know, I'm the one always on my phone and. Yep. And even it's like, funny how life is that, that way. No, it's unbelievable. And like now it's funny because like my dad's in a completely different relaxed mode and, you know, they're trying to go on as many trips as possible. Obviously COVID slowed it down a little bit, but no, it's funny. And just kind of like going back years, think, thinking about what he, um, how he operated and now kind of seeing it from my standpoint of why is that like just back then when I was, why is dad not home yet? Or, you know, why is dad not going to be here for dinner? Like now seeing it from my end, it's just, you know, it's kind of roles reversed. And uh, so I, I try and I'm trying to be better about not being on my phone as much, but um, I mean, when a coach calls, a coach calls. Yeah. I mean, you could try as hard as you want, but that's, yeah. that's where they are. That's that's where our, our customers are, right? At the end Absolutely. of the day. So the thing that, that you were talking about was you emailed all these people, right? Like I think everybody understands that like wants to break into college football. Like 
okay, I got to, you know, work my butt off and, you know, I got to hit up a bunch of people and I got to network, you know, network. And they think, okay, well, I hit them up and they didn't have a job for me. So, you know, all right, cool. I, I guess I'll move on to the next one. But you stayed in touch with Cody, even though they didn't have anything. I think that's a tough concept for people to understand. And it's the only reason I got my job was I stayed in touch with Dallas Blacklock when he was at Houston with the Tony Levine staff before Tom Herman even got there. Right. Mm -hmm. And it took the perfect scenario for me to get over there. But I think it's so critical, especially in, in today's world of like, you can get in contact with so many more people than before with follow somebody on, on Twitter. And if they follow you back, like hit them a DM, don't just let them follow you back. So I guess just like what advice do you have as far as staying in touch with somebody who doesn't have a job for you? You know what I mean? Cause it's such a, a weird balance to, to kind of play. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, you hear people about it, talking about it all the time, whatever profession they're in of just networking and the importance of your network. And um, people want to hire people they like and who they, um, you know, can respect their grind or their process or how they've gotten to where they are. And my biggest thing over the years has been, I'm unbelievably, I mean, how lucky I am to be around the people I was around, not just my entire life, but really in my, in my professional career has been, I mean, it's been an unbelievable experience. And so I'd be cheating myself if I wasn't staying connected. And if, you know, I mean, whether it's a handwritten note every, I mean, uh, I don't know, before every season or maybe in the off season, just to check in on them, you know, it, it just staying in touch with those people means so much. And now it's so easy through text message, through emails, um, you know, doing it enough, but not bugging. And I, I went from the second I did that with, or met Cody via email when I was trying to break into the profession, I just felt it was always right to, you know, wish them luck before the season. Um, if I'm ever in Chicago, kind of give him a heads up to see if I could meet up with him and just pick his brain. Um, and then throughout that, just all the people I've come in contact with, obviously you're not going to be able to stay in touch with literally every single person. It's not that easy, but um, doing your best you can to, you know, keep those relationships going because it's not about what's open now. It's, it's when in the future, something is going to open up, you know, we're in a profession that stuff opens up every day of every month. It, I mean, it's insane. And, you know, they, I mean, they could have, a, anyone can have a guy leave at any time. And the second someone leaves, you know, they're going to have, whether it's a depth chart of people or just, they're going to have people in mind that are going to click right away of this is, yep, I'm going right to yada yada, because I know he's going to be interested. I've built a relationship with him for four years now. Um, whatever the situation might be, but I think it's just something that you got to maximize. You got to take full advantage of, but also be smart about it and not just, you know, try to use everyone possible because that's just not realistic. And if you don't actually have a relationship with a guy, it's, it makes it a lot harder to get that job. I think it goes both ways too. Like you probably connected with Cody as well. Right. And you liked talking to him. So you've got to want to like that person and want to be in the position of working for them. Don't just pursue people just to pursue people because then you're wasting your own time. And just to piggyback off what you said, as far as being smart about it, when a dude's on their bye week, hit them up. When it's 
you know, the off season, just randomly hitting them up. Not don't, don't hit somebody up on like Christmas. Like, you know, they're going to be with their family, but pick the times of the year and, and be strategic about it. Hey, I'm going to check in every, you know, couple of months, not every week, not every day. Right. Um, so I think that's, that's really huge. Like the bye weeks are, are big. And even when you're on your bye week, um, if you're with a team. So want to get into, oh, what, were you, what were you going to say? Not to, not to jump in, but I mean, especially in college, I mean, the amount these coaches are on the road, they want to call someone. And yeah. Like, it, like for myself, for example, especially, I mean, December and January are a little ma- more chaotic for coaches because they're flying around so much, but I guess January is kind of turning into spring recruiting anyways, but mostly, I mean, a lot of January and especially that May and a- April and May period. I mean, yeah, I'm getting calls all day from our coaches, but I also expect to get a couple of call or calls, whether it's during the day or at night, because I know coaches I've been with in the past are going to be looking to hit up guys. They want to, just BS with, or they might have an hour drive somewhere or they have 45 minutes to kill. And, you know, I haven't talked to yada yada in this amount of time. So, I mean, and sometimes, I mean, when I see them calling, sometimes I'm like, Oh my yes, that's awesome. And like, I, cause I want to just maximize those relationships. Yeah. So getting into our, you know, topic of the week, the numbers game, the, the roster management side of, of college football. Um, you know, I think, for not only recruits, but recruiters that are just now getting into the game. In a lot of buildings, that's kind of held, you know, hostage more or less by the head coach and the DFO or whoever chief of staff is, you know, it's kind of lock and key. And, you know, you don't really know much about if you're recruiting intern. And um, I think, especially for recruits, it's something that needs to be, there needs to be a heightened level of awareness for it because, it is a numbers game. Like people are committing right and left to lock in a spot. And I think it would really help if you just kind of talked through, you know, first starting out with like just eligibility, what does that look like? And when people talk about like three for two or two for one, what are they even saying? Like, what does that even mean? And for recruits, I think it's important to understand like the rules around eligibility. If you want to just kind of like, if you gave a crash course to, your fiance. Yeah. Well, I mean, from, from an eligibility standpoint, for the most part, it's going to be five years to play for. So a lot of guys, it gives them the opportunity to, you know, come in as a freshman, uh, red shirt if they need to, and really kind of take in everything because they're coming from high school. It's night and day. Yeah. I mean, you're learning at a different pace. You're learning a lot more. So it gives them time to adjust. And a lot of these guys aren't coming in until June before that freshman year. So obviously some will come mid-year, so they'll be able to learn it more and get ahead. But doing something like a redshirt year will give you that time. And that's why they're, they're given that extra year so they can still play for their best years. Um, obviously there's situations that'll change that, whether there's injury or you know something might come up that they're not able to play for a year. So that could sometimes grant a sixth year. But um, a lot of these guys are playing four or five. They're going to be there for four or five years. But now, now more than ever, guys are, you know, guys are recruited to play right away. And, uh, you know, recruiting's kind of shifted from a high school standpoint of earlier and earlier. But even college, I mean, these guys are coming in and playing as freshmen. So you just got to be able to manage that roster as best as possible. And uh, we talk about it on a daily basis, especially, you know, with Coach Fitz, 
and you know obviously our DFO Cody it, it's not something that's always presented fully well it's presented to the staff but it's not I kind of like a, how you alluded to it it's like a, a hidden thing that everyone doesn't know about it's more just we don't want everyone concerned about it at all times and yeah something yeah. we want to really take a deep dive into of what we really need so we can present it from a 10,000 feet above approach and not just that oh, where some of your coaches are going to come to you and like, you know, a couple of their guys are dinged up and they're like, oh, well, what if these guys are forever going to be dinged up? Then I'm going to need another spot for this class. So you just got to take it from the, the approach of, you know, 10,000 feet up and really take advantage of diving into it and making sure you're making the right choices because that's going to affect the team. I mean, you don't want to have your numbers off. You want to have the right amount at the right position to, to, so your players can compete at the highest level. And that's a daily thing. Like, I feel like I'm looking at the, like, that's one of the first things I do every single day is like, I'm looking at it from a different angle. It's like a Sudoku game. You know what I mean? Like you're literally looking at it from different positions, years, classes. Um, going back to what you said, as far as, you know, the game is shifting to allowing more players to compete early and make a difference early. You were with Boston College when you guys recruited A.J. Dillon. You left right when he started that freshman year when he went for 1,500 yards. Right. Um, I mean, ridiculous numbers for a freshman. What was different about him just from your angle of being in the recruiting process and seeing him and how he carried himself? Like, were, were there any signs that you were like, yeah, I think this guy's going to come in and be that guy day one? Or did it shock some people? Uh, no, he was a freak. I mean, when we – when that whole process went on, he was from the East Coast. Um, he was going to school in Massachusetts, but he was originally from Connecticut. So we had a we had had a relationship with him for a long time. We had a relationship with his high school coach for a long time. So we knew of him, and we knew early that he was going to be a big time recruit. And then when he committed to Michigan, we knew this thing wasn't over. And he. You know, he had been at our camps. He, I mean, one time he showed up and he camped. He was 240, ran like a 4540, and like jumped out of the gym. And it was just one of those like, this dude is going to be a freak. Um, and he obviously then, you know, I was there for when he showed up. I had left at the end of August. So I left at the end of in the training all, camp. Yeah, it all, it all jumbles together now. But, um, I mean, he was, a, yeah, he was a freak. And he, I left that year at the end of training camp, but everyone knew this guy was going to come in and make a difference. And he, he came in, he played right away. He, uh, he didn't, I'm pretty sure he didn't start right off the bat, but he started shortly after that. But he's one of those guys who he's a big, big back. And we knew also that he was going to take some wear and tear. So we need to make sure that room is developed as much as possible. And, our running back coach, Brian White, who's phenomenal. I mean, he's coached studs like Ron Dane and the list goes on. But we knew we just made had to make sure that the, the running back room was ready to rock because he was going to be a stud and he was going to get hit a lot and we were going to need to play a lot of guys. And, you know, kind of just going back to him, his build was just – he looked different. And yeah. he also run that 4-5. or five. And – he was able to help recruit the class. And um, obviously he flipped a little late. I think he flipped in December, um, maybe even earlier, but 
I mean, he was just, he was a freak. So we kind of, we, we knew when he was coming in, we had something special. Yeah. I think the body type thing is big too. Um, to be able to handle the wear and tear and like the contact and the hits, the hits are so much different at the next level. So what I also wanted to ask you was the four game redshirt rule. Like how critical is it to evaluate the development of underclassmen, especially right when they get in on campus. So like, I mean, really that, that fall camp, um, seeing them on the playing field and seeing who can play, who, who needs more time to develop and who could get you four games. How do you guys use the four game rule? And um, how, I mean, I think it's a game changer. I think it's amazing for, for college athletes to be able to get that experience because you learn by doing, you learn by experience in the game. But how do you guys use that rule? Everyone in the country is trying to maximize it. Obviously you want to get as much experience uh, for these guys under their belt before they're really going to have to take on a bigger role. And at the same time, you don't want to put them out there when they're not prepared. And yeah. Last thing we want to happen. So we just monitor it very closely and we make sure, are they really ready to play? And um, we try to teach them and have them as prepared as much as possible so that when the time does come that they're ready to rock. And yeah, we want to maximize as much as possible and try to get each kid to that four games and you know some end up going beyond it and some end up coming short of it but it really just depends on their development and kind of like this whole uh this whole past couple months have gone it's a marathon not a sprint there's no reason to ruin a kid's career a couple months into it because he wasn't ready for something and now he's fighting an uphill battle the rest of his career whereas you can let him develop you know, get a maybe maybe it's only a game under his belt, but maybe it's four games under his belt, or maybe he does exceed those four and uh, burns that red shirt. But you, we, it's just something you got to monitor very closely from you know head coach down, and uh, just kind of making sure we're putting the right pieces in place so our guys are ready to compete at the highest level. Yeah, and I think the communication is really key too. Like the thing that Coach Bloomgren does a good job of is like he meets with these guys before the season and like, hey. This is this is what we're talking about as a plan to for for your first year for it's maybe it's a second year kid that that used his eligibility and he has a red shirt still. Hey, this is what we're thinking based on where we're at. How do you feel about this? I think it's so huge to like involve the player because the worst thing you can do and and this is on both angles, like the worst thing you can do is sabotage trust, right? And especially with the way college football exists now it's there's a portal like now like I think it's great that we've allowed athletes to you know kind of have some power and to control their destiny so to speak um does it slant the far end of the spectrum a lot of times yeah it probably does but um I think what we've got to make sure we do a good job of in the recruiting and the personnel space is like be honest with kids like goes back to the honesty piece of the recruiting process has to exist once they get on campus or you're just going to lose that trust scholarship allocation. So 85, 110, 25, talk me through what those mean differences between overall counters and initial counters. Yeah. And uh, I mean, starting with the 85 is you're going to be limited at 85 scholarships for your roster and you got to be able to space those out and really look at your roster of where those are going, what positions, what each, obviously each coach is going to want more than he needs, but um, you just got to be able to, as I kind of alluded to earlier is, you know, take a look at it from, 
10,000 feet above the big picture of everything. And, you know, there's going to be an initial counter of a new scholarship player at a school and, you know, in football, you kind of, you're only, you're given a limit because you're not allowed, you can't go over that 85 max. And it pretty much keeps teams from really just stockpiling on players. And, you know, once you're locked into a kid, you're locked in for four years. So it's one of those, you know, it helps you manage. It helps you manage the roster. Obviously, a rule, but it also just helps you manage on what you need to be doing. And from the 85 scholarship standpoint, we treat all our players the same. And, you know, we have a big walk on um, a group that we really rely heavily on. And we expect those walk ons to compete just as hard as our scholarship guys. And we recruited them. We've, you know, obviously the recruitment's different from that standpoint, but the way we've, you know, identify those guys is we view them the same. They're just not obviously given a scholarship and what we expect them to be on the, in the depth, um, especially from a special team standpoint, it's a way to maximize that your roster. So, you know, your ones aren't getting burnt out because they don't need to be on all special teams. And, you know, you're able to develop some guys that are lower on the roster so that they can take reps off those players. And, you know, it's all about upgrading the bottom of the roster. And so when you're looking at a class and, you know, it, obviously it depends on the year on how many you can bring in, you know, obviously it depends on the seniors that are graduating. Um, you know, you got juniors that might be graduating or you got some might be leaving for the NFL. You got some that might be calling you saying, Hey, I'm going elsewhere. You got to be able to manage this. So when those situations happen, you have guys ready to rock. And it's the same standpoint from that then draws into the recruiting process process of it as okay all of a sudden a guy medicals or something comes up and it's november and it's 30 days before signing day and you all of a sudden are realizing you have another spot in this class well you better have your board ready to rock so you can take another at whatever position that might be and that you're not all of a sudden okay let's watch 10 offensive linemen because we need to go get one more like you need to be ready to take whoever's that next guy in your system, even though if at the time you're full for your recruiting class, you never know what's going to happen. So, um, you know, it's kind of always being prepared and kind of goes back to what we brought up earlier of uh, just always managing that scholarship database in the sense of looking at numbers, looking at how your roster shapes from this year to next year to three to five years down the road of where you need to keep, you know, an eye on each position, keeping the right number at each position, um, keeping at what you could lose a guy for a medical reason, NFL, whatever it might be. But it's really just kind of taking that from a 10,000 feet above approach. Somebody, uh, somebody dropped this quote, some obscure podcast I was listening to, but Mark Wahlberg, like he goes into a bunch of different movies, right? And with actors, you go into different roles for, you know, different types of movies require different types of fitness. And, and they're like, so how, you know, what's your regimen heading into whatever X movie? And he's like, I stay fit. So I don't have to ever get fit. And I think that's like totally like on point for recruiting. Like I, I stay watching recruiting tape. So I don't have to go out and try to find it at the last minute and rush the process. And I think, the 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 key is like knowing okay yeah i could make an exception and take a certain number or 
go over this number that we've allocated this year. And we would be fine. We would be fine in 2020. We'd be fine in 2021. What does that look like in 2022? Like, am I going to have to take seven offensive linemen in one class? Am I going to have to take three quarterbacks if I skip out this year or miss on this kid? Or if I go get a grad transfer guy, what does that mean for the development of that room? And I think you alluded to it a second ago, but the, you got to know how many you need at each position because at the end of the day, it breaks up. You can count it a, a bunch of different ways, but um, you can go 41 on offense, 41 on defense, and three on special teams. You got your 85. It's different from team to team, and I think that's where in recruiting it's so critical to, as a recruit, know what type of system you're getting recruited into offensively like what do they do what are they trying to do like what's their philosophy and and approach same defensively and I think in the recruiting aspect in our world like if you don't know what you're trying to execute offensively and defensively from a schematic standpoint and what these coaches need to win then you're gonna have a hard time finding guys that fit their system and fit their mold and really if you get it the more you develop that relationship with your coaching staff the better you will be at filtering the list before you even bring it to them. You know, I I know you've, you've been at Northwestern now for three years. You probably know exactly what Fitzgerald loves and what he hates. And I think that's so key to it's, it's about efficiency, right? Like we don't want to waste time. Like there's only so much time in the given day. So like, and there's only so much time that you can devote to watching tape and talking about ball without being tired or like, all right, yeah, I'm, I'm, like mentally I'm about to be locked out today. You know what I'm saying? Like you need to make the most of your coach's time. And from a walk-on program standpoint, you talked about how important that is and how you recruit them differently. I'd love for you to talk about what the recruiting process looks like for a walk-on and what the walk-on program is as far as maybe not getting into detail on how you guys do it, but just kind of shedding some light on how important that is to building a team. And also how they can be put on scholarship because I think that's something that needs to be in the back of, you know, if you're a recruited walk-on or somebody that coaches are developing those relationships with and spending time on, they see you as a player that can contribute down the road and they see you as somebody with ability, what, wherever that may lie on the spectrum. Right. But the, the, the rule that if you establish residency after one year, you can be put on scholarship without counting towards the current classes cycle. And I think that's so huge. It, it opens up so many doors and it's been great to me at Houston. Some of our best players were walk-ons that got put on scholarship and also at Rice. So just talk about like, what does a walk-on program look like and how do you do a good job of building up? You know, you talked about upgrading the bottom of your roster. Like what does that process look like? Yeah. I mean, it's, well, it's identifying kids. You're still identifying kids all at the same time. And it's, but, you really got to take a deeper dive in at, okay, these kids are going to be, you know, they have the grades to check out because obviously that's going to be most important with us is grades, um, whether that's test score and GPA, that's going to need to check out because they're going to need to get into school, um, obviously uh, along with being part of our football program. And, you know, we're going to take a, we take a deep dive into that, but we also, aren't going to be ones like we're, we're not telling a kid his junior year that he's going to be a walk-on because you never know what's going to happen with these kids. And a lot of the kids we end up recruiting are, you know, guys that we feel we can beat out other school programs from 
even if a guy has offers from other programs. Now, obviously, if it's, you know, a lot a handful of schools that are our same caliber and he has offers from, we're not coming at him with a walk-on approach. But we feel that we can beat a handful of schools out with a kid to walk on here than him go to another university with a scholarship because they're going to get that equal opportunity to compete. And they're also going to have the ability to earn a scholarship over their four years. Um, Coach Fitz is, you know, second to none in the country of scholarshiping his walk-ons. And there's, I mean, there's facts from it. And, you know, we just, we have an expectation of that our walk-ons are going to come in and compete to play. And, you know, kind of going through that whole walk-on process is, coming to a point of the recruiting process where you got to be real with the family and you got to be real with the kid of look, this is how we see you. This is where we see you at in the program. And we think that you would be an unbelievable, you know, walk on in our program. And we kind of, we you just got to allude to the whole process of it. And, you know, you got to take it a little, you got to take it from a different standpoint of, um, on how you want to exactly obviously address it and then it's a it's a I mean it's a slippery slope because these kids want to be loved and they want a scholarship and they want to go about the whole recruiting process the way their friends do and the way everyone else in yeah. the country is tweet out that they're blessed to receive an offer and the whole nine yards so but doesn't um, but doesn't the way a kid respond to it kind of tell you a lot and probably help weed out some people who may not be a good fit as a walk-on because it's a different mindset too you, you got to also think about that as far as you know you're at the bottom of the totem pole and you got to earn it and I think the way college football has changed is like you know everybody's in the same boat working in the same direction like there's no difference in treatment of walk-ons and scholarship guys nowadays versus some like old school stories you hear about you know other programs but is that something that plays a big part in in finding guys as far as when you guys are putting together who you go after as a walk-on? Yeah. I mean, I mean, like you said, and it kind of goes back to what we alluded to um, uh, earlier in this conversation about fit is you're going to know right away kind of how they react, if that's what it's going to be. But then again, these are kids that you've, you know, you've kind of been doing all the research and everything trying to learn about um, over the process to that kind of can shape to, till that conversation happens. So, yeah, um, you know, coaches are a lot of high school coaches or side trainers or whoever it might be that you, you've been able to talk to. Some, some will allude to the fact that this kid will be a great walk on, or this kid would love to be part of your program. Um, even if it's from a walk on standpoint. So that sometimes helps shape it, but you know, sometimes you're going in somewhat blind, you have all the information, but you don't know how he's going to react. And, you know, you might get the look, we're looking for a scholarship. We're looking for this and, sorry, but, um, you know, we're gonna have to go our separate ways unless that's something you're offering us. So it really depends case by case. You also got to understand where they're coming from, from a, from a financial background. And, uh, it really just kind of alludes to, like you said, you know, going after the right kid and the right family to make it work. Yeah. I think that's a big point too. Let's talk about the initial counters and the 25 you're allotted in a given year and just kind of like the strategy that's involved. And you talked about it a second ago, as far as, you know, medicals happen in season, you know, transfers happen at times that you're not expecting. How do you adapt and adjust on the fly and how fluid 
is that 25 scholarship number for a given calendar year. Yeah. I mean, and kind of like everything, I mean, every, a lot of things in this profession, especially from that, from the recruiting side and, it's, and scholarship side are going to be fluid because it's never, it's a lot of times it's not set in stone from, you know, whether that's a coach has taken three offensive linemen and all of a sudden six months could be taken four offensive linemen. Um, a coach could, two guys could go down in a coach's room and then all of a sudden we need three more at that position, whatever the situation might be. But when you go back to those 25, you just got to be really careful of where these are coming from. And especially with now with the grad transfer or the transfer process in general. And, um, you know, with these kids who are grad transferring and these kids who are just transferring that who have to sit out a year, that's all going to affect your scholarships. And especially from the standpoint of, also with the medicals and, you know, a guy in the sophomore class could be medicaling. Well, you got to make sure it's going to hit the right year because not every scholarship's gone to that exact year that you're recruiting or that you just brought in. So you got to be able to shape your roster the right way and, you know, keep a close eye on who you're bringing in, who's part of this class and what's ahead. So you can manage that the right way. And, especially from the standpoint of like, I kind of went back to before of making sure you're always ready and having that board ready at every position, because you don't know when things are going to change. And you don't know if a medical could affect this class, next class, or the class after that, it it all depends on the situation. So you just got to be really careful about how things operate. And before we get into the listener questions, just as like, reminder for for recruits when you get offered ask the coach is this a committable offer and if it's not what do i need to do we don't live in that world i know you guys certainly don't live in that world so understand that because it is a fluid situation because rosters change daily and the roster is going to look this is another thing when we get back from covid different players are training differently right different players have access to more or less uh, facility. So who knows what exactly our team is going to look like. That's going to be another challenge. So I would just encourage recruits, if you have a committable offer, like understand that's got an expiration date on it. It's not, it's like milk. Like it's the, you could leave it in the fridge as long as you want. Cool. You got milk, but I mean, you pour that into a glass after three months of it sitting in there, it may not be drinkable. Uh, <laughs> right. So yeah. from a listener question standpoint, I got three, um, three for you, uh, starting off with what are the challenges of inheriting a new team and roster management and, and building? And I know that you've, you stepped into some situations where, you know, Coach Adazio was there for a while and, you know, Coach Fitzgerald has kind of established himself at Northwestern by the time you got there. But just taking off your Northwestern cap for a second, what are the challenges of inheriting a new team? Yeah, I mean, and I mean, I was kind of different situations that I've been into because I mean, when I was at Boston College, though, I was there their second year. So they had just taken over this program and position. And it kind of also goes to when position coaches come in new and, are you know, say we just hired a running back coach and well, this is a brand new room to him. So you, you just got to be able to manage it from a standpoint of, look, I get it these weren't your players or say, for example, when I was at Boston college and they had just come in and take over this program, these weren't their players, but they have to kind of adapt to the situation. 
And, you know, rosters, things are going to change on the roster. And, you know, maybe they're coming into a roster that had more tight ends than it did at the the previous spot that staff was coming from. Or, you know, maybe their outlook on a defensive roster was just not where this staff's wanted it to be. Well, you got to take time and really dive into what we need to change. It's not going to change overnight. You have to be able to manage and recruit. So in three to four years is when it'll probably kick in. But these next couple of years, I mean, you re- you got to realize that you're, these kids are locked in. I mean, you know, some staffs end up running kids off or kids are transferring because they didn't want to be part of this staff or whatever the situation might be. But you really got to be able to just understand that it, things are going to change. It's fluid and it needs to be locked. You need to put a plan together so that down the road it's going to be where you want it to be because it's not going to be there tomorrow and it's not going to be there a month from that either i think it's really important just communicating as much as possible from the right people taking that ten thousand view approach and from where i'm at where i mean obviously coach fitz has been here for 15 years so i mean you're you're still you still fight it just in the sense that you know things happen over the years and you know, at some point, a number might get tweaked here and there or ever when a new coach comes in, I mean, they're coaching guys they never recruited. So um, yeah. it's always one of those funny ones of they always want uh, to be able to take as many guys as possible at times. Yeah. Every, every those recruiting meetings. Yeah. Can we take another, you know, can we take another oh, nose yeah. tackle or can <laughs> we take another, uh, let's take another wide receiver. So the thing that, that I would say is, from a a schematic standpoint, that's normally the the most difficult transition. So like when we were at Houston, um, Tony Levine ran more of a four man front. And when Todd Orlando was the defensive coordinator, we ran a three man surface odd front. You're playing with a four eye and a nose and same with D'Onofrio. D'Onofrio had the same scheme and it was like, Holy cow. Like where do we go find a four eye? Um, when you got a bunch of, you know, outside defensive ends and three techs. So I would say that's normally the biggest challenge is if you have a change in like scheme, but the thing that you have to be really good at, I think the really good coaches do a great job of, okay, maybe he's not a perfect scheme fit, but what does he do well? And maybe I can put him in a better position to maximize his strengths as a player. And I think if you do that, one, it keeps your kids bought in. It keeps your kids engaged and you show your real ability as a coach. Anybody can go pick out, you know, draft a, a player in the first round. He's a good player. But like the best coaches to me are the ones that like maximize every ounce of talent in a player. So that that's probably what the biggest challenges are. is just like the difference in scheme and knowing that it's going to take time. Yeah. Um, so last question, what do you think? has changed the most over the past five years in recruiting and what's the trajectory of the player personnel world in college football? Cause I think you and me, you know, when we got on the phone last week, just to, to touch base, um, it's kind of crazy how like similar our stories are as far as getting started, getting a foot in the door, you know, volunteer and the recruiting department probably wasn't very big necessarily at Boston college at the time. It was probably bigger than most, but like probably wasn't very big. And when I was at Houston, it wasn't very big either. And I, I mean, really, over the last five years, it sure has like 
exploded. So like, just talk about how it's changed since you got into it and where do you think it might go? Yeah. I mean, even from the time I've been in it, um, it's, it's changed, it's taken off, you know, from the, from the media stamp, from the social media standpoint of graphics and videos and, you know, the communication side of now how, you know, FaceTime and well now even zoom, but just being able to contact these kids and, um, you know, they, obviously they, they're all about the love and, uh, they want to tweet out that they're blessed to receive an offer and they want to, uh, you know, kind of just, some just want to add offers to the bag. You know, they're really interested. I mean, it's really from, from that standpoint, it's trying to just stay ahead as much as possible and trying to adapt as much as possible. And, you know, I'm lucky cause we have a unbelievable graphic and video design staff here where these guys are just pumping out information and, you know, they're getting hit up by our coaches. They're getting hit up by people on our recruiting staff of just, and they're just pumping out as much as possible. So I feel great about where we're at from that standpoint. Um, as far as personnel in this profession, I mean, it's taken off night and day from, like you said, from when, when we entered the profession to even 10 years before that, when there was just one guy running the show and he was the DFO, the DPP and the director of player development too. So I think, I mean, right now it's kind of growing rapidly. Um, I do see it going the direction of the NFL from the standpoint of scouting and recruiting kind of, they're the same, but broken up into, you know, obviously how we have it like here at Northwestern, we have, you know, an area for graphics and like recruiting content. We have an area for communication. We have an area for on-campus recruiting, which deals with all the visits and, and then we have the scouting side, which is, you know, evaluating all the film and gathering all the transcripts. So I think, from that standpoint, um, I think that's only going to continue to grow more. And I think these staffs are just going to continue. Obviously, it depends if like limits really set in and you know, they try to control that. But I, I really think it's um, it's really taken off. And the amount of assistance these coaches are receiving is, I mean, it's unbelievable because now they're getting pretty much like a travel agent. They're getting pretty much a, like all these things that coaches used to when they were on the road, they'd be doing everything themselves. Well, now we can provide them as much as possible. We can provide them certain evaluation sheets that when they're walking into the school, they're asking these certain questions. They already have the information about the coach, uh, everything they need. So then they're just filling it out and sending it right back to us when they leave that school, when they wrap things up at the end of the day. So I think it goes both ways. I mean, it's, it's awesome because it gives us the opportunity to provide more jobs in this profession. And it also gives us the ability to provide more for our coaches. I think it's also tough because then it, you know, you're, you're taking abilities away from coaches that some are very good at and they're kind of then relying on their assistance more than they need to. But that, that's just going to be the fight you're going to fight when you have this many people on staff. Yeah. Where they're the ones going on the road. And I think until, that changes. I think that's the next hurdle that has to to happen where recruiting staff members or a staff member on the recruiting department can go on the road during the fall. Cause like, I feel like you could do so much more and be so much more effective if you allowed your recruiting staff to do the evaluating in the fall when like our staffs are so busy with game planning, with practice, with, you know, making sure our guys are taking care of their classwork. I think that's such a, a different, side of it that I hope changes because I think that will help us get towards being more of a scouting and personnel department. I think um, really at the end of the day, it's like Alabama and 
Ohio State were kind of like at the forefront of all of that. And you've just kind of seen just the evolution of it since then. Absolutely. And like, I mean, in this year more than ever, I mean, we, we're going to want our players to be around our guys. So our coaches to be around our guys. So, yeah. Yeah. Especially this fall. And I mean, I've talked to, to NFL teams that this whole COVID time period is going to be weird. Like, are they allowed on certain campuses? I think that's going to be a real challenge for, you know, just talking NFL wise in that picture. I mean, shoot, like it's going to be a weird draft season for these guys if they're not able to come because normally fall camp is the busiest time for scouts to be getting that first exposure and I think you know bye weeks for for college football staffs are going to be really really busy because we didn't have an eval period like right right, that's going to be like spring (laughs) jam-packed in the one week so right uh before I let you go I wanted to get your one last uh piece of advice for recruits parents and coaches yeah, I mean, and it kind of wraps into all, all three of those. I mean, I, I can break it down, obviously, to each group. But, I mean, for all of them, is just make sure they're doing their absolute research and they know what they're getting themselves into because you're – I mean, you got to put your trust in this coaching staff, in the players on that team because that's the culture your, your son or your player or yourself that you're going into. And I just think too many kids – these days are just being reactionary, um, looking at a logo and saying, oh my God, that's my dream. Yes, I need to do it. Well, you got to see what they're really providing for you. And if this is the right fit for you, if this is the right opportunity for you, um, because there's, there's, I'm sure, I mean, for most of these kids they are getting plenty of offers um, and they need to really dive in and do the research on the front end, on the back end to make sure that it's the right place they want to be at because you don't want to be that guy who then transfers and then transfers again and is just miserable. And because you really just accepted a scholarship to accept it for the cool to be that kid at your school that's committed to yada, yada, when really think about your life after that. And yeah, you, obviously everybody wants to go to the NFL, but okay. Think about even after that, because we all know that the NFL also stands for not for long. So yeah. Uh, making sure you set yourself up for life. Obviously you guys probably pre- preach something similar to us is, you know, it's a 40 year thing, not a four year thing. So, um, you know, just make sure you're making the right decision for the right things. And, um, you know, the, just building your, you're going to end up having to build a network to get a job sometime in life. So I would just, you know, prepare to do that as quick as possible. Yeah. That's so critical. Thanks so much for for jumping on the show. Really, really appreciate your time. I know we're all busy. Your texts and emails are constantly going off all day long. I'm I just on, on this one recording. I mean, you're talking like eight to ten messages. It is it it is the world and and what we've put ourselves into, right? It's it's the life we chose. Yeah, so, absolutely. where can our followers and and listeners find you on Twitter and social media? My Twitter handle is at Johnny Kovach, J-O-N-N-Y-K-O-V-A-C-H. Um, I mean, it's I, I see everybody who follows me. It's it's an open Twitter account, so it's not like I'm hiding anything. And then I have an Instagram as well. If you just search my name, Johnny Kovach, it should be able to come up. Again, thanks for jumping on the show. And I look forward to staying in touch, man. This was, this was fun. Enjoyed talking shop with you the past couple of days. And uh you know, best of luck moving forward through this whole COVID time. Absolutely, man. I, I mean, can't thank you enough for having me on and obviously love talking this stuff with uh, 
anyone in the profession. So uh, it's been a pleasure doing it with you too. I didn't even know you a week ago and now it seems like we know everything about each other. Yeah, no doubt. Well, you have a good one, man. All right, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time.